Hey, this is Bob Lee, and you're listening to Over the Ball with Kevin Flynn, the world's game from an American perspective. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Over the Ball with Kevin Flynn. That's me, joined alongside uh, media executive Grail Hallett and OTB producer and Serie A specialist Sam Griswold. Today on OTB, you want to listen to this interview we have with uh, Professor Stephen Bank. Uh, it is, it's just incredibly, you know, he takes these really complex stories about the collective bargaining agreement with the MLS and the women's national team and everything. And he breaks it down into very digestible pieces that even a moron like, like uh, Grail Hallett can follow. (laughs) (laughs) No, no me. I was going to say me. And then I said, you know what? I'm going to throw it out of Grail. Unbelievable. Uh, Steven is a law professor at UCLA and he's an expert on, you know, the intersection of sports and law and contract negotiations. So he breaks it all down for us. Uh, He's also a soccer guy. He loves the game. So it's nice to get that, uh, that perspective from him, but guys, how great was that interview with him? It's fantastic. I mean, I, I, I'm not sure how he'll take this compliment, but I think of him as being kind of the Bill Clinton who I put on a pedestal as a guy who take who could take complicated issues and simplify them and make he them understand. Bill Clinton could take a complicated life and try to make it simple, but <laughs> no, but, but he think, really does. It's it's an art form to be able to do that, honestly. Right. Well, to be able to speak about such complex issues yeah. and break it down. I mean, that is a, uh, he teaches a lot of these courses at UCLA and I'm like, I just moved out West. I'm like, I want to sit in on one of these classes because I don't remember professors like that. I mean, we all have one or two. It's that like Rodney Dangerfield. That, that's the visual I have. What was that? What was the movie? Where oh, he back went? to school. Back, back to, school. to school. There we go. Flinny, Flinny and Professor Banks, Banks class. Yeah, you know, hitting on the co-eds. How you doing? <laughs> hey, I'm uh, Mister. Uh, you know. Remember, my one friend used to say, "Yeah, I asked out a girl. She was too young for me." You know how I knew? She's like, "Do you pay taxes and stuff?" Wow. <laughs> God. You know, on a campus, uh, we would I would stand out like a sore thumb. But uh, but Sam, I think um, you know he had a lot of interesting uh, insight in a, a lot of your your questions about write-offs and you know why teams are being bought now the americanization of some of these uh european football clubs did you get the answers you wanted you tried to yeah. stump them at the end there well i i mean i guess i did i i was admitting i didn't really know what was going on with the champions league and hoping he'd sort it out for me uh which he did um yeah. but yeah he i mean the way he keeps all these arguments kind of in his head at one time is, is pretty amazing. You can just jump from one to the other. I never heard the shuffling of papers or since we Nothing, can see yes. him. No, no, well, since we can see him because we Zoom, he was not looking at a screen for cliff notes or anything. It was all up in that noggin of his. I know, just so. Uh, all right, so great interview coming up. So stick around for that. Uh, but before we get going, guys, what are you over today on Over the Ball? Sam? Well, I know this is going to be controversial, but I'm oh. over after watching Serie A and Coppa Italia this past week. I think soccer needs to get rid of this kind of tradition of kicking the ball out when a player on the other team is down injured. I know it like people love it. It's this classic thing. It's great sportsmanship. Yeah. I think it leads to more controversy and bad sportsmanship than it does good sportsmanship because you see teams, you see a guy go down and a team, a team carries on playing. They almost score or they do score. And then the other team flips out and then there's almost a fight. I mean, I, I just don't understand. And I also think it leads to guys, especially defenders, like say someone takes a shot and it hits a guy in the face or something, they just collapse to the ground and go down. And then yeah. because they know it'll kill the action. I mean, yeah. I, how, about I, ju- I how about just more judgment, Sam? Like if it's clearly like if a guy looks like he basically had his leg broken. Yeah, exactly. I don't know. Yeah, I but don't yeah, but see why the ref can't no. have. 
Yeah, but that's like a Roy Keane thing where he broke that guy's leg on purpose, right? And but the, but the play stops. The referee calls the play. I think what Sam's referring to is that sort of like that that gray area where some guys continue to play, some guys don't. Are you a well, good guy? Well, and then or, yeah. or some guys don't know the etiquette. Honestly, I think some young players, frankly, just don't know what they're that you're supposed to do. I just think we could get rid of it. I mean, yeah. I, I watching hockey last night. You know, a guy took a slap shot to the shin pad, like went down. You know, and the play continues until his team gets the puck again. It's it's yeah. a very simple built-in rule. And, I don't know why that can't apply off. in soccer. Yeah. yeah. I, I think in a, when it's, there's like, a, you know, so there's a counter on or any something like that, people have a tendency to not stop. Um, there was a, there was there was an injury a few years ago where a guy it was so horrific the guy's ankle snapped in two and his leg was dangling where all the players saw it and and it was just so automatic right I mean that was of course, the ball went yeah. out and you, but you're right Sam I mean it, it it's a ploy they do it in the NFL players go down all the time and like grab their calf. Mm-hmm. And they and do, it there's, there's they medical, do it in the NHL. They do it in the Medical timeout or whatever, you know. Well, I, I love when um, you know, in football, all my football buddies used to say, "Why do these guys fall on the ground?" I'm like, "Well, yeah, there's no timeout and there's no, uh, you know, substitution, and you can't sit out a couple of plays on the sidelines and then go back in. Like if you get your bell rung in football, I remember uh, when Oregon was doing that hurry up offense. Uh, suddenly, all these football players, these big linemen are pulling up with hamstring or fake hamstring injuries and stuff, just trying to buy some breathing time because they don't want to hustle back to their line, you know? So everybody players, has this gamesmanship. How about players who, who hold the ball and refuse to give it up for a throw-in? That's another one of my pet peeves. My pet peeve is when a guy you take a guy like a slide tackle and he grabs the ball with his hands. That's a yellow card. You just handball. <laughs> exactly. You know? It's like it, let the referee call a foul if there's a foul. Yes. But you putting your hand on the ball should almost – make the point moot where it's like, okay, now there's a yellow card for you holding the ball. Not the, just what if the guy doesn't want to call a foul at that point, he's got to stop the play. So, all right. That's a lot for uh, your, your, uh, what are you over today? Grail, what are you over today? Well, you invoked his name. Coincidentally, Uh, I'm over Roy Keane. Uh, Roy (laughs) Keane came out on Sky Sports and this long diatribe saying that Liverpool are bad champions. And I'm just like, Roy Keane is just there to make inflammatory statements. Again, again, an inflammatory statement. That's what he is. He's a walking inflammatory statement. And the thing is, um, I I just don't agree with it. You can say they've underperformed. They've done this. They've done that. Has Klopp complained sometimes when I thought it was a little bit over the top? Yes. But to just say, to paint it with a broad brush and say they're bad champions, just get on with it and whatever. I don't know. I just thought it was... All right. Well, well I mean, Roy, Roy I, I, he lost me. He lost me yeah. when he broke that guy's leg that time. What, is, just, what does that just... mean? What, what, what's a bad chance? Well, he's, he says that, they're, that they've got a million excuses. You know, everything went right for them last season. Now they've had a little bit of, uh, you know, they, they've had some headwinds, right? So, right. So, so anyway, so he's just saying, let's talk about Liverpool a little bit yeah. because it seems to be on everyone's mind. Um, yeah. You know, a, a tough loss, you know, um, Grail, you said a resounding loss before we got on air, but I, I didn't see that. I just saw like Man City just eventually just broke them down. It was, uh, you know, evenly matched at times, but Man City just seemed to have their their foot. Well, resounding the wheel. doesn't necessarily have to be just the score either. Resounding right, right, can right. be the impact. And, and what I meant was it's just to me, it was the microcosm of Liverpool season is that everything that went right last year is going wrong this year. On top of which, you know, Allison, who's arguably the best keeper in the entire oh my world, God, had, yeah. two, had two gaffes within ninety seconds that were that, that you wouldn't see on a 
on a playground pitch of 10 year olds where he just gave the ball away. And it just, it just felt, you know, I know I went into the game predicting that, that Man City was going to win comfortably. I didn't, I wasn't thinking there would be mistakes like that, but anyway, right. I, I just feel, again, I'm not writing off Liverpool for completely for the top four. I'm just saying it's not going to happen. And by the way, I'm not convinced that it couldn't be Leicester either. I'm not w- willing to crown Man City because I think a Leicester or somebody like that is more inclined to make a run at it than a Liverpool. They, they play this week. So, uh, you know, yeah. what, what I thought was interesting is watching how the game has changed. Uh, before, a keeper would put his foot through the ball pretty much every time, and he'd yeah. rarely try to play it out of the back. Now it's the exact opposite. Uh, you know, it's almost like this point of pride where if you're playing for someone like Klopp or Pep, you don't, you don't, put your foot through the ball. And there seems to be certain situations where you have to just clear it out when you're under pressure like that, when they're pressing high guys are marked uh, and Allison just tried to remain calm, which I've watched him. I've watched him, you know, just put balls like between seams. uh, Unbelievable. I'm like, wow, I wouldn't try that as a, you know, center back, Never mind as a, as a keeper, but it, it works when it works. It looks great when it doesn't. Wow. Does it fail badly? And he did two in a row. Uh, went right into his head there. Yeah, man, so. I mean, the, the second one, he just really didn't look sure of himself, which is really, it was interesting to see a guy of that caliber look very unsure of himself. But, uh, right. you know, it, cha- it changed the course of the game. And the other thing you can't lose sight of is, you know, in the 37th minute, uh, Gundogan had a penalty kick that he kicked about as far over the bar as Biagio did in the 94 World Cup. Yeah, I mean, this right. thing was up in the, the top end of the cop. And you're thinking, oh, my God, is that a precursor? Because Man City's missed a number of penalties at Anfield historically. And and again, a tale of two seasons, City bounces back and ends up winning the match. Whereas I think last season, Liverpool jumps on that mistake and probably buries City. And again, they're just the goals are not coming the way they were coming previously. Right, right, right. They're, they're, and, yeah. and, and that defense, it's just, again, City's defense is just really, really airtight right now they are all right so uh and you brought back the baggio goal the, the miss um that was actually the year sam was born so be careful with your references <laughs> sorry. Uh, I'm sorry you know I'm and just quickly i want to mention because i know this is near and dear to the to the show but um there has continued to be some racial abuse in the premier league uh, and it's been on uh, it's been on facebook so it's facebook again coming uh, under some controversy but they're they're trying to introduce some measures to stop it grail you yeah you i mean i, I you know, I may sound borderline political here, but I'm so tired of Facebook and them saying that they're going to deal with things, whether it's on the political end of the spectrum or the racial end of the spectrum. And the fact is, this has been going on for a long time. It bubbled up again. Marcus Rashford, his teammate, Anthony Martial, Reese James from Chelsea, just hateful, hateful stuff on Facebook. You remember, we talked about this a while ago with fantasy sites, Soccer fantasy sites in Europe, they were allowed to use racist names, right? So it's like, you know, tech companies have to start really monitoring what's going on on their own. So how can you say something racial on Facebook and not be suspended as a user? They're not not paying close enough attention. I don't, again, they're they're saying they're putting measures in place. Crowdsourcing though, you know, I mean. But but it's basically because the FA and the Premier League and the British government have gone nuts over this and they've forced Facebook's hand. Again, I I just never feel like Facebook ever voluntarily does a damn thing. 
No, exactly. They wait till. All right. So let's talk U.S. men's national team. I was happy to see this. It's a March 28th friendly against Northern Ireland in Belfast, uh, where my uh, my mom's people are from. First meeting between the teams since 1948. Grail, you played in that game. (laughs) You beat me to it. I was going to say that was the year you were born. (laughs) No, great. It's great. Sam's over on the side, you know, like uh, drinking out of a baby bottle over there because he's so much younger than we are. And uh, and you, you call it another powder puff friendly. I don't I, understand it, that. It, it was it's the feels, national team. I, it's yeah, but Wales to me was a powder puff. Friend. Look, it's oh, not. It, it's wow. not Trinidad and Tobago. Okay, I'm we can't. We that. can't win as I'm Americans. Not saying, it's not Trinidad and Tobago. I'm not equating the two. But seriously, I, I think there's a chance. You know, Biden has Biden said early on that he really wanted to go over to Ireland to do an official visit. I don't know, COVID-wise, mm. if it's going to be safe for him to go. But that would be a wonderful opportunity for him to go over there oh, as, as our president to uh, that's check the out north that's match. the north though that's uh, the north that's part of england yeah um, you know so you know, anyway. historically so uh mls news uh you know i want to talk to to uh, professor bank about this one but uh, fc cincinnati made a record signing i know it's this 21 year old uh, brazilian uh guys but goes by one name uh, of course brenner uh, which it is sounds like a cop show. It's, it doesn't Brenner. even sound like a Brazilian striker, does it? It's like Brenner. <laughs> well, what people don't realize, it's David Brenner's son. So uh, that was, you know, that's another one that'll go right over Sam's head. Um, all right. So anyway, let's talk to Stephen Meg about that because it's $13 million fee. And this is right after this collective bargaining agreement was made. So uh, we just, want to, just want to make a quick comment on this. Yeah. It is the uh, third highest transfer fee ever paid by an MLS club, according to transfermarket.us. Behind? Uh, Gonzalo Martinez went to Adla- uh, Atlanta in 2018. Atlanta. For, he was worth uh, it. 15.95 million and Ezekiel Barco also to Atlanta in 2017 for 13 and a half million. I believe the uh, 13 million is just an initial fee for Brenner. So that could go up and eventually get even higher on the list. So what was the difference between that and the Beckham and, uh, and Ibrahimovic coming over? How much did they, I mean, I, I think guess that's they, just the transfer fee. I saying? think they came on free transfers. Yeah. This is yeah. Uh, these are transfer fees, not contracts. Yeah. Okay. Champions league knockout stage. Uh, February 16, 17. Uh, oh, it's light. tasty. That PSG, that PSG Barca match is going to be a yeah. good one. But yeah, yeah, COVID again, getting in the way of the Leipzig uh, Liverpool. Liverpool match, which, uh, which was going to be at Leipzig. Now they're going to have to move it to Budapest, I believe. Oh, you said um, that correctly too, Grail. Yes, I, I, I was Budapest. working on that. For, I was working on that for the show. So uh, Such an elitist. It's a terrible... Yeah, uh, that, yeah, that's uh, good. Well, look, Champions League stuff. I love the knockout stage. Like, yeah, yeah. We, yeah, we Sam, we, we we always talk about how we hate the early rounds, and I know that they're they keep looking. And did we talk about that in the last show, or was it an article that we read? They're they're looking at different ways to jazz up the beginning stages, right, of the Champions League to just make mm-hmm. it more interesting. I think. Yeah, it's like Liverpool against you know Little Sisters of the Poor. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh, so. So, no, this is where it starts getting very exciting. Good. And a lot of news coming out of uh, Syria, ah, Sam. Um, Conte had a, Conte, as you would say, had a temper tantrum. Yeah, well, this was this was in the Coppa Italia uh, this week. The, hey, the Coppa Italia. <laughs> the second legs of both semifinals were played, and um, Conte really got into it with uh, the Juventus owner Andrea Agnelli, who uh, was in the stands. And uh, in addition to some of the Juve players, in and, the stands. Wait, how did that happen? How, what did well, he do? Like I, yelled at him? 
Well, I mean, now you can hear everything that people say. And yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, it, actually, it actually started with um, Bonucci, who was on the bench for Juve, uh, basically mm-hmm. telling Conte to shut up early in the game when he was arguing a couple calls. And uh, then that escalated into Agnelli, the owner, you know, shouting <laughs> some it. things. And then oh, Conte... send me a clip of that, uh, Sam. I want to see my drama. That. Anyway. It sounds like an Italian opera, doesn't it? <laughs> Pretty much. And Conte gave uh, Agnelli the finger as he walked <laughs> off and then... I mean, I, I think it's great. I mean, this is, you know, the biggest rivalry in Italy, probably, you know, the Inter Juve is called the Derby of Italy when they play. And uh, it's good to see it have some energy. Um, you know, Conte's points are that Inter don't get any respect. And that's kind of a, an idea that a lot of people in Italy have that Juve kind of think they can do whatever they want and get away with it. And in a lot of cases they can. So he's, He's trying to kind of raise Inter to that level, um, but he, he's claiming he was abused and insulted the whole match unnecessarily. And of course, uh, he managed know. Juve, didn't he, Sam? He did manage Juve. Yeah. So he, he what was his feeling when he was managing Juve? <laughs> well, that's a good question. But he did leave when he when he left to go to Chelsea. Grail he left yeah. kind of quickly and abruptly, and uh, yeah. did not end his relationship. That and well. guys, so, as we all know, familiarity breeds contempt. So they, there's obviously a history there. So hey, some young players. In Syria, uh, uh, we're keeping an eye on Sam. Mostly, you keeping an eye on him. But one of them, uh, an American, another uh, sort of a famous person's son, Didier Drogba's son, Isaac. What's oh, yeah. the story with him? Uh, he signed for a Serie C two team, so a C two team, fourth level. Um, I don't know too much about it. I, I don't think it's a really big deal because that. I mean, you're. What would you compare there. fourth level to? What would you compare fourth level to? Uh, I don't know. Maybe like a college team. Oh, okay. uh, I mean, okay. if, if you're looking for an American parallel. So Isaac Drogba joined Wesleyan University. He's in Wesleyan now. <laughs> Dude, okay, he's playing in the Nescacks uh, this year. And well, you know. Um, all right. I so mean, Brian this, Reynolds. You know, I, I tried out for one of these teams. Didn't make it. But, you know, that tells you what, what sort of level you're, you're looking at. Oh, God. I turned um, down a contract in Ender, in Belgium to come back to play for my senior year at UMass. What was I thinking? I don't know. Um, I guess my girlfriend was back there and I wanted a college degree. Go figure. Uh, <laughs> Brian Reynolds, what's the story with him over at Roma? Yeah, I, I had said last week he was supposed to be in the bench for the game against UA this past weekend. Yeah, he was not in the bench and does not look like he'll be on the bench this weekend. So, I mean, it makes sense. He just got there, probably taking a little time to adapt to things, but uh, I'll obviously keep updating you guys on his his play and what's the story some of the uh dell uh, bought a team in italy i mean is that dell computers is that who so that is? this um Karen. i don't this hasn't gone through yet but um there is a hedge fund which mostly looks after the money of michael dell who's the founder of dell um yeah. that is interested in buying and i think very close to buying a team called los spezia which is in a city called la spezia which is kind of confusing um <laughs> and uh it's not I mean, this is their first year ever in Serie A. They just got promoted. They're actually doing okay. They're overachieving. They're kind of, I think they're 12th or 13th place right now. Most people expected them to go right back down. But I I don't really get it because it's it's not a sexy locale at all. It's actually where the Italian Navy is. It's like a very kind of, it's not a touristy spot. There's it's, nothing. The Italians to- have a Navy? Wow, that's good. <laughs> um so it's a little bit of a strange one. There was an article in La Gazzetta dello Sport, the main Italian uh, sports newspaper this week, about how a lot of hedge funds are getting interested in Italian yeah. teams because they're facing a lot of financial issues due to COVID and they see a real business opportunity there. Um, oh, that's not good, man. That's I don't know. Good, I, I, you know. I think it's I think it's kind of sad. Obviously, I get it. The money has to come from somewhere. It's just global. Yeah, but the whole hedge fund thing but, is... 
you know, the whole hedge fund is like when someone, one of the hedge funds bought Simmons Beauty Rest, they, they come right in. Here's a great product that has a long history, a couple hundred employees. They come in, they immediately borrow money in that company's name uh, to pay back the, the purchasing price. Then they go in and fire people. Then they cut the mattress in half. So they lower cost. It's like just, I think for a team that's so much passion and part of the, the local landscape, I know you have Lo Spezia and La Spezia. They don't get along at all. Yeah. I, I'm not from Lo Spezia. I'm from La Spezia, you, you ignoramus. But I, I don't think it's a, I think investments are good, you know, where you have, uh, you know, I mean, I, I don't know. Maybe there's no difference between the Fenway partners, you know. With yeah, Liverpool but the corporatification. I'm just making up a word right now. Corporatification of of soccer has alienated a lot of soccer fans. I mean, I know right, as a, as a right. Chelsea fan, you know, yes, I want to win, but I also want to like feel good about how the team's being run and have a connection to that. And again, I just think so many clubs, it's it's just, that's lost. And I just yeah. don't think ownership knows the importance of that connection. In, right. in Italy too, I mean, Italy's sort of been the last of the big leagues to sort of modernize its ownership <clears throat> structure, excuse me. And for a long time, you had, you know, people like Berlusconi running Milan or Moratti running mm -hmm. Inter who were, you know, say what you will about them in their, you know, other lives, politically, et cetera, business life. But I mean, they loved those teams uh, and they, yeah. you know, poured money into them probably recklessly. But I mean, they really wanted to win, and that's what they cared about. It wasn't. Oh, we guys, so we got a lot more to well, get it's like through. The here. Mara, it's like the Mara family with the New York Giants. You know, they've they that family loves the team, and I just feel like the fans feel that, and that's mm -hmm. important to them. You know, that they, you know, some of their decisions they might not agree with, but there's that connection. All right. Um, yeah. So we got a lot here. We have a great interview. Again, stick around for it with Stephen Bank. But I just wanted to touch upon a few things. Uh, Coppa Italia final in May, Sam. Oh, yeah, that's so the results of the two games this week are that Juve will play Atalanta in the final in uh, May. I know that's a long way off, but I think it's worth pointing out because I think it's uh, it's a very appropriate final because Juve have obviously been the dominant team in Italy for uh, too long now. Um, and Atalanta have sort of been the the fun team, the most entertaining team of the last decade, I would say. So that's uh, a fun showdown to look forward to. All right, there's an FS1, uh, a game on FS1 today, um, the Club World Cup final. It is, it's in Qatar, or Qatar, whatever you want to call it. Uh, it. Really confusing to keep up with all these leagues and games and stuff. So, uh, the World Cup, I think Liverpool's won the Club World Cup several times, but yeah, I'm, I'm kind of, I, I hate to Barca, say it, but I kind of tune it out because it's just, it's just another, yet another tournament. And one uh, of those things, oh, sorry, it's one of those things I think like Tigres from Mexico who are playing yeah. Bayern in the final. It's a big deal. I mean, it's a big deal for them. Sure. I don't think it right. really means much to Bayern. Yeah. yeah. Um, and thanks. Uh, who, who gave me the heads up in the Nicholas Sanelka documentary series? Uh, uh, yeah, that was me. But I have to give a shout out to Ian Plunderleith at Soccer America, who wrote an article about this. Um, it actually came out in August, but it's the first I've heard of it. It's um, an hour and a half documentary on Nicholas Anelka and his playing career. It's called Anelka Misunderstood. Uh, according to Ian's article, it sort of amounts to a defense of the player and his um, very chaotic and controversial career. Mm -hmm. um i God, it's like know. ancient history now it does feel like a long time ago but i think wenger uh, is is uh definitely represented in the documentary right 
So yeah, he's in there. Like yeah, Henri, he I mean, a, yeah, yeah, a lot of a lot of big names. So yeah. well, that's it in that whole French World Cup team. You know, yeah, took the world by storm. So uh, sure. some some great stories. So uh, all right, so let's uh, let's take a quick uh, break here to give some um, sell some magazines or yeah, online publications and some ticketing services. And uh, when we come back, we're going to talk to. Uh, Stephen Bank, he's a professor at UCLA, but he's going to break down MLS and, you know, the Players Association, the CBA. They've revised it for the third time in a year, but obviously uh, COVID has changed everything. So um, we'll be back right after this. Over the Ball is brought to you by Soccer America. Go to SoccerAmerica.com slash join and sign up for the Soccer America Pro Membership. It's just $4.90 a month or $49 a year. and by Ticket IQ, the simplest and cheapest way to buy tickets. Go to TicketIQ.com, and when it asks for the promo code, punch in OTB10 for $10 off of your purchase. Can't lose. All right, our guest today on OTB is a returning champion here on the show. He is the Vice Dean of Curricular and Academic Affairs and a professor of business law at UCLA School of Law. Man, I feel like I'm in the principal's office. That's, uh, that's something. It's a lot of authority right there. Um, so, uh, but more germane to our conversation today about the collective bargaining agreement and Major League Soccer. He is sort of an expert, or not sort of, he is an expert on soccer law and, and really the intersection of sports and business. He explores these issues in his course, International and Comparative Sports Law, as well as his perspective seminar on law, lawyering, and the beautiful game. Uh, guys, we've call, called the right person this morning to help us out. Professor Stephen Bank, welcome to OTB. How are you, Professor? Good. Thanks for uh, having me here. Yeah, you know, um, a, a lot of people can't make sense of the, a lot of the things that are happening. We were talking about it before you got on about, you know, write-offs and write-downs and tax liabilities and what the true loss is and how that all factors into what you try and deal with when you're, you're doing a contract with the player. So we're looking at Major League Soccer, the collective bargaining agreement, uh, the league and the players. From your perspective and what you've known so far, you know, who won? Was there a winner or is it just a, another agreement the third one in in one year i think uh, is this the final one and if so who who made out all right well on on the question of is it the final one it, it's actually a really good question uh i think you could say in, in 2021 there still could be another one because the force majeure clause which was the genesis of of much of the discussion uh, about potentially locking out the players uh, remains apparently in the agreement and therefore they but they can't invoke it until december of 2021. So it's certainly possible, theoretically possible, if, if the pandemic uh, just devastates the season, uh, that the owners decide to invoke the force majeure clogs again, or for that matter, the players, but, but likely the owners. But on the so other... So force majeure, just explain that to yeah. some of our, our listeners. It sounds like that French, you know, croque monsieur <laughs> with the ham and the... And the so it's, it's an clause. odd clause in this context to begin with, but generally a force majeure clause... It, is something that was unanticipated, something that was sort of an act of God is Actually, usually what right. happens. So okay. you're you're saying that this is the contract, but if you know an act of God occurs, uh, then the parties will not be required to fulfill their obligations under the contract. Okay, gotcha. So it's gotcha. usually thought of as impossibility, uh, <laughs> but um, this is a unique situation because they agreed to the force majeure clause in June when it was fully understood that there was a pandemic, there was no fans in the stands, there at that time no vaccine, uh, it wasn't clear when any of that would change, uh, and therefore, to call it kind of uh, something that 
you know, an act of God. It was already here. We knew what it was. You could plan for it. Uh, mm -hmm. um, it sounded to me, and again, they never released any particular language, and I'm not positive they actually had any uh, fully drafted approved language. I think it was one of those, uh, a term sheet probably, or a, or a description of what they wanted. But uh, it sounds to me like it was more of an economic impracticability argument, which in law, legal terms would mean uh, we think that if we don't have fans in the stands, we can't do this deal. And we all agree this deal is predicated on having fans in the stands. And so if we're not going to be able to get kind of somewhere in the fall enough revenue from, from ticket sales, then we're, we're going to all rethink this deal at the end of December. We have the right to rethink and that's different than the typical force majeure, which is, you know, uh, most of the litigation about force majeure clauses, which exist uh, you know, far outside of soccer, are uh, did the clause say something like a, a pandemic, you know, or was it just force majeure means like if there's an earthquake or there's a, you know, a, a hurricane. That we go to war or something. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. So that's the force majeure clause. I mean, I view it, I view it as this. Uh, uh, the, the predicate for the deal is that uh, um, we understand here's the economics and if the economics aren't what we think uh, with adjusted expectations downward for the existence of the pandemic, then we rethink it. That's, that's what it looks like to me. Now, my take was that it wasn't that contentious. It seems like you're, everyone's just acknowledging reality, basically, with this one. And it's sort of, uh, let's live to fight another day, basically. Is it, is it sort of so... In a sense, it's sort of just a stopgap sort of agreement. Yes, you, you could say the interesting thing is, is after the deal was signed, uh, the league was emphasizing that, hey, we are now on till 2028. No, we have not had a work stoppage. That's a great thing. And we're on to the next, you know, uh, uh, seven years of no work stoppage. Isn't that great? When in fact, both in June, when they signed a deal, uh, they were really, really on like a six month uh, um kind of option, you know, that, that after six months, they had an option whether they're going to continue with this deal or, or rip it up and write a new one. And it, it feels like this is another one year option. Now, to be fair, no one wants to go through this again. I'm sure MLS doesn't either. Uh, so it would be it would be contrary to all the parties hopes and expectations, uh, or they wouldn't have bridged the deal uh, to that they're gonna to have to rip it up in December. They're just hoping the vaccine will be distributed that at least some fans will be, you know, in the in the stands, and that in January it'll be, or as next March it'll be really fully vaccinated. Well, maybe it'll be our, all of our grandparents in the stands because they've gotten the vaccine and they can go to the games. There, there you go. Well, <laughs> it's a different demographic. The, the social media folks are. This is good. We're we're growing the base of MLS. Uh, Grail, you have a question, yeah, for the Professor. Uh, thanks for joining us, Professor. As always. Sure. Um, so it seems like right out of the gate the goalposts have moved because the original preseason was going to start on Feb 22nd. The start of the season was going to be the third and it's been moved to the 17th. They're going to cram 34 matches now into a 30 week window. So I'm just curious if you're on the player's side and you've, you've already signed an agreement. I mean, those are not incidental changes in it. So what happens? Do you just, do you have to, do those have to be included in a revised agreement and then re-signed or is it just kind of like, okay, we're fine. We'll just move along with it. Well, usually for the players, I mean, you trust your, um, your, 
union and their negotiating team that they've decided, you know, they've gotten what they can get and mm-hmm. what they can specify and the other things they're agreed to allow unspecified. So in this situation, if that was critical to them, that was well known that that could be an issue of when we start. And, and so they didn't negotiate for it. The I- ironic thing is, is that the longer you push back the season, the more likely you get fans in the stands, right? Just be, just on the mm-hmm. general assumption that vaccine will help um, uh, states open up uh, stadiums and in that situation uh this is totally to the um to the league's benefit to increase to, to delay you know just a couple of weeks but every couple of weeks will help and that's probably a um from the from the the owner's perspective that's probably something to discuss look if we can delay it a couple of weeks it won't the fans won't view this the media won't view this as a big deal but it's worth it the 30 um the 34 games in 30 weeks thing you know, because of all the competitions, they're going to lose a lot of players. I, I wouldn't be shocked if some of the players were like, not the worst thing in the world because I get more playing time, right? I get right. to achieve a bonus uh, criteria. I get to, you know, show myself and showcase myself for moving abroad. So not the worst thing in the world for some of the younger players. Okay. Uh, yeah. And just a quick follow-up. Um, Don Garber has again put out the figure of a billion dollars and losses on the heels of a billion dollars, which is a nice, tidy, massive sum of money. I'm just curious without, you know, going through an, an, an entire mathematical instructional here, you know, how, how do you get, to, is the billion a real figure or is it just almost like a little bit of a scare tactic or something to say, hey, a billion the owner, dollars. Yeah, the owners are really taking it on the chin. You should feel sorry for, for them. Austin Powers yeah. figure, I think yeah, you're referring exactly. to. Yeah, exactly. It's clearly a figure that is a nice round figure that they're putting out there. Uh, you have to understand there are multiple pots of money here. So the most sports franchise ownership is based on appreciation of the of the franchise. So it's not it's never about the operating revenue. It's always about how much the 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 worth of your the value of your um, your rights go up and IP rights and and the right to run the the, the team. And so in this case, the issue is that they pay the contracts centrally. The league has all the player contracts. The player contracts are funded by a couple sources, the most significant of which is, is the ticket sales. Uh, they, do, they also get national TV contract and uh, national sponsorship deals. But if you don't have uh, um, fans in the stands, the TV contract isn't going to change at all. That's a stable number. Sponsorships, you can't, you know, it's hard to believe that sponsorships are going to go up dramatically during this period, but, you know, I mean, they can make a little bit more money there. But but if the ticket sales are way down, they clearly are losing money, whether it's a billion or not. They're, they're clearly, you know, there's a gap in how much they can pay. Uh, you know, that, that bucket is 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 dry. Now, the, the interesting thing is, is, um, you know, that's all accounting, right? Where, where, what bucket you're coming from is accounting. So there are revenues that come into the investor operators. Uh, th- they can keep, first of all, they can keep some percentage of the, I think it may be something like 60, 40, so they can, might keep 40% of the ticket sales if there are any. Uh, they keep local sponsorship numbers. So, you know, if you hear about Austin FC selling great, um, you know, having great uh, um, success uh, with their tickets, with their sales for their local sponsors, that's not going to help the league per se. Um, uh, so there may be people making money, owners making money in the league on an operating basis who are not actually contributing that because they're not required to, to the contracts. 
Uh, let me ask you this quickly, Professor. If Is this unique to Major League Soccer? Because of all the major sports in this country, yeah, MLS depends upon its ticket sales revenue for, you know, for money to keep the, the, the business model afloat. Is that unique to the sports like hockey, football, baseball? The contracts, really, the money is from the networks, right? Yeah, so uh, football is the polar opposite. Football, you know, the fans are, are, are background actors. Right, they could just hire a bunch of people and be in the fans. They did those cutouts that they had at the Super Bowl, yeah. (laughs) And it wouldn't change. I mean, they're they're, the the ticket sales are a relatively small percentage of their overall take because of the size of the contract. Um, NBA, MLB, NHL are somewhere in between, right? NBA is closer to NFL, NHL is closer to uh, MLS, you know, just in general terms of the size of their media contracts. But Mm -hmm. the MLS's media contract is really small. In comparison, so it's 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 there's a gap, there's a pretty big gap even between NHL and and MLS, and and so that's a big deal. In fact, you might describe the entire CBA uh, negotiation and result as being a bet about the the TV contract, the media contracts. To be fair, because it's not just TV, it's uh, you know social media, whatever they can, however they can right. bundle this, because. Uh, for the first time, the players are getting a share of the um, media rights. Now, they got that back in February 2020. They've got it cut down. But there's a bet that the players are facing that whether they're, you know, they're pushing back the 25% they were going to get earlier, pushing that back to the last two years that were added, uh, and only having 12.5%. It, you know, it's, it's 12.5% of a positive number is more than what they were getting. So they're hoping that it'll be successful. They'll get a really good TV deal and they'll end up with more money. The, the owners are, are betting that they will also, in the, those out years, they will make up the losses they're having right now because the TV will be uh, um, that much better. Okay. I don't know. Yeah. I think that's clearly a bet on the league. That's a bet about the state of, of, of TV and social media that that the numbers, prob- that the, the viewership numbers during the pandemic certainly don't give you great confidence that there's going to be a lot of bidders for this, uh, unless it's unless it's packaged, you know, with U.S. Men's National and U.S. Women's National Team deals, and you know, it's part of some, and it becomes sort of a bigger rights package that's somehow successful. But otherwise, you know, I mean, I mean, look, I, I, I admire both of them. I, I said this after the deal was signed; they're both betting on the on the league. Prospects because they're basically betting on the TV contracts being successful. They need to do really well this year and next, and then maybe they'll maybe they'll work. And there's always the croak monsieur out there, leak looming large. All right, Sam. Yeah, um, building on that a little bit, Professor. I'm reading a lot about how in Europe right now, um, investment firms in particular are getting very interested in clubs because of the debts that they've racked up during COVID, and really, you know, sort of sensing a business opportunity there. so I'm wondering what the, your takeaway is on this CBA in terms of new investment opportunities, how, you know, prospective new investors might react to it, if there's any opportunities it generates. Well, I think uh, it's always been attractive in Major League Soccer because of stability. And so what the CBA gets the owners and future investors is they can look at the, here's what we're going to pay out. We're not going to pay out more than this unless you you know, decide individually to spend on designated players or under 22s that, that go beyond the, the limit. So you can really, you can figure out here's what our costs are, here's what our, um, you know, our, our expected revenues are. And that's that's really attractive. Uh, if you're dealing with Europe right now, 
there's a lot of um, uncertainty about TV deals even, right? So that people often think about, hey, TV is so much bigger in Europe. Um, not, not so fast, not clear, if you, especially if you had any kind of uh, um, other, these other um, uh, competitions like, uh, you know, the Champions League, expanded Champions League, which takes away from the domestic league money, uh, potentially. Mm-hmm. You know, so, that there, so that's the big attraction here is that there is in, in, in MLS or some, they've got some stability and they've got some, they've got a, a pathway to stability in the sense through 2028, that's pretty attractive. So it's, but it's a question of betting. You know, you're betting that revenue is going to increase. The, the owners are clearly betting that the World Cup in the U.S. will, in, in 2026, will provide uh, a, a boost, boost. Yeah. To, the, to the revenues. Grail? Yeah. So, Professor, the ink was barely dry on the CBA. And uh, little old FC Cincinnati went out and plunked down $13 million to get a 20-year-old Brazilian striker named Brenner. And I'm just wondering if the timing of that was a coincidence uh, that it took place immediately after the signing of the CBA, because it seems to fly in the face of the whole argument of austerity that's being touted by the other side. Yeah, I think that the this is, the, this is where the... Um, Part of this negotiation was being fought in the press, and and so the public always uh, is dubious. Well, really, the, the players always throw out, "Hey, you, you're not poor. You guys are all had a lot of money, and and look, you're spending a lot of money. Look, you're bringing in uh, expansion teams that are bringing that are paying a, a big fee. You know, all of that. Uh, and the owners always say, "Hey, we're losing a lot of money," and both are true. There is huge amounts of money. It, the ownership is, is better positioned to withstand a pandemic they ever, than they ever have been. There's real billionaires there. Uh, that's actually one of the problems in some other American leagues um, that, are, that are trying to get their footing. Um, uh, even NWSL, for example, uh, has, has, is better, but they still don't have as many billionaires. They need like people right. who can burn money you know, for warmth right, and, and not miss it. Um, and so, so they have that. And the designated players, when you pay, and, and probably, uh, probably FC Cincinnati overpaid to get this player in MLS rather than in Europe. Uh, but that's, that's their money, right? You know, Meg Whitman's involved there, and you know, they've got some big ownership, uh, you know, big ownership uh, money there. Uh, that was not going to be league money, so it's not paying your average player salary. It's a different pot. So the, the, the league, which, which extracts kind of a tax from all these um, ownership groups, uh, only has the money that they have. And the, the um, individual owners can decide where they're going to spend. I mean, AEG with the Galaxy could easily pay, you know, Anschutz could pay and buy a huge DP right now. Would that mean that the, that, that the LA Galaxy were profitable last year? No, it would mean Anschutz is willing to, to make an investment or a bet um, uh, in, 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 in a player. And so I think those things are both true, but I do think that it's a, um, it's, it's, it's a it's, it's constant public relations battle. You know, do you spend right. or do you, you know, or do you say you're poor? Yeah, that's um, what I, just a quick follow-up. I was just going to say, just from a perception standpoint, if I'm, if I'm a player who's earning the league minimum, you know, and I'm scraping by and yes, the salaries are going to go up year over year per the new CBA. It just, it just seems like a, uh, it seems like a tough argument to explain 
to the lay person who follows the league? The optics are, are not great. And my yeah. guess is that either the timing was a problem for the player, they had to get the deal out there, or the league told them you have to wait until after the ink is on the paper. And then they just jumped, you know, mm -hmm. and, and it would have been nicer if they'd waited a couple of days. The argument, though, is that the ownership group would not have invested in the league without this financial stability set forth in the CBA. Mm -hmm. So that would be the argument. That'd be a better PR argument. Than mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's interesting because what the country is going through right now with information and misinformation and, you know, really uh, the, the pipeline of information that comes out and how people perceive it is part of these negotiations, which you're talking about, who's got the upper hand, um, take you to the women's sort of game where you have that. And then you have this sort of overlying marine layer of sexism over things. And the, the, the misconception has been, has there been any progress in um, that negotiation with the, with the women's league? Well, other than they've managed to settle the working condition claims on the yeah. uh, U.S. Women's National Team pay mm -hmm. equity case, which is which is not insignificant, right? That's a, right. you don't have a trial. You you have um, some underbrush that's been cleared. The the uh, the judge still has to approve that, and in the hearing for approval, because it's a class action, they have to ensure that the rest of the class isn't you know in a disagreement with the class leadership about settling that case. So that's in April. But once that's settled, then they'll be able to appeal. Uh, and go to the Ninth Circuit, maybe they'll get the summary judgment reversed, in which case there'd be a trial. And there's, a, there's a lot to do legally on that. Um, I, I feel fully comfortable. I can put that in my syllabus for the next, you know, few, few <laughs> years still. But um, it is a, uh, but it's, it's a positive. It's a, certainly U.S. soccer is making positive statements about it. I, I yeah. think that um, uh, NWSL and U.S. soccer have made positive moves that need to happen, which is they're allowing the players to play in Europe to, you know, get their highest bid, not to, you know, if you sign the U.S. Women's National Team contract or you have to sign that contract to get on the team. And all of that is what you need to help deal with some of the other aspects of pay equity, right? If you don't have the guaranteed right. contracts through, mm -hmm. uh, um, through the soccer, uh, through um, U.S. soccer, then you can actually have sort of a more equal discussion about both teams, what they should get paid. But right now, the problem has been that the, the women need their guaranteed contracts, so they're accepting some guarantee and losing some upside. And so that actually is a positive development. Yeah, and I think, I think both sides learn from that. Um, you know, and having you break it down for us on an earlier podcast was, was really interesting because then knowing the facts uh, and then watching how it was misrepresented by media, it only fanned the flames, it seemed, and made the two sides basically lose the PR argument in both directions. It was terrible. Uh, Sam, you have a question for the professor? Yeah. Uh, just before we let you go, I'd love to get your take on the recent Champions League group stage proposal we saw, and which I don't even fully really understand. I'm not sure. Are you trying to stump <laughs> Professor Banks here with <laughs> his knowledge? I, I and what are you trying to do? I'm just so curious. Is Sam what? coming in from left field. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Let's test his knowledge. So, ra Sam, rather than go through the logistics of that, which is sort of not in the legal, you know, uh, terrain, let me tell you the the the, the legal context for that. Mm -hmm. uh, so, UEFA in their statutes has a provision that UEFA has sole jurisdiction uh, to organize international competitions in Europe, in which any member associations or any clubs of of their uh, of those member associations participate, and UEFA must have must approve under again under the statutes must approve any international competitions not organized by UEFA. So uh, the question there legally has always been: Does that violate 
competition law under the European Convention uh, or constitute an abuse of a dominant position, right? So that's it's, it's a it's a that's what we would call in the U.S. an antitrust issue is that UEFA is saying you can't do anything without us saying yes mm-hmm. or us organizing, and uh, there's an argument that that violates what they call competition law. We call antitrust law. It's abuse of their dominant position. Uh, so frequently, the um, top clubs uh, threaten to break away. They say, we're just going to break away from the domestic leagues. We're going to form our own thing. We're going to be outside of UEFA. You can't do a thing about it. And by the way, you know, most of our, most of your revenue comes from us, right? And so you're in trouble. And so there's this dance that goes around. They threaten yeah. breakaway and then things are happen to, to placate them. The Premier League is in part a break, you know, a response to breakaway in, in mm-hmm. England alone. The Champions League itself is a, is, is a response to a previous breakaway attempt. And so expanding breakaway uh, is, is a response as well. It is uh, the, it's this concern about um, these, these clubs that will just say, you know, we want to, we want to do our, we're going to take our ball and, and go elsewhere. Uh, but it is, they're clearly uh, selling their soul in a certain sense, because if you think that the European soul is built on promotion relegation, it's built on open competition, even though the Champions League has been already a violation of that because it, it um, and, you, and financial fair play, when you combine the two things, it's hard to have enough money to spend money mm-hmm. if you don't make Champions League. And, and so people right. make Champions League, make more money, they can get back in Champions League. So it's really been a closed league it's in like a lot that. of ways. Mm-hmm. But uh, this is uh, this is like they're now dispensing with the, you know, really the, the facade that they're sticking to kind of, this is open because they're now having like even spots for teams that, you know, traditionally qualify, but didn't, uh, you know, just yeah. big clubs essentially. Yeah. So I think that that's what this is about. It's a, this is totally uh, um, a, a, a response to a legal threat and the legal threat uh, is it's not unreal. There, there have been some cases in rugby and a few other areas where uh, the EU has, um, has cast doubt on the authority of an international sports federation to dominate uh, the, its members this way. All right, Sam, you tried to stump the professor and you failed <laughs> no miserably. He, you failed professor miserably, Sam. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> you passed your midterm, professor. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Well, you know, but the, the bottom line too is, you know, you are a fan of the game and we love this game. Your brother was really involved with the game as well. And so, you know, part of the, you know, of Sam's feelings, we talked about it before you got on, was these financial opportunities for these teams that used to be all about passion and your, your, you know, your local sports teams that you would root for. And now they seem to be moving towards the American model of a write-off and a write-down and, and, and all that stuff. So, um, you know, and here you're talking about a super league that would basically do that, not just on a provincial level, but boom, suddenly around the world, you got, you know, eight teams that are making the champions league money every year. And what's the opposite of a death spiral. It's just a, a positive, you know, once you're making that money and you keep winning and you're in the Champions League every year. Well, if you want to if you want to tie this to more legal disputes going on. So there's this case in the U.S. relevant sports against uh, U.S. soccer, against FIFA, U.S. soccer, you know, MLS. This idea that relevant wants to put La Liga games in the U.S. Like, a, a, you know, put put the, you know, the, the Barca Real Madrid game in Miami. Um, that is also falls in the category of, you know, a potential antitrust violation. That's what they're alleging. But it is a case people are watching all over the world because that's the next step is why do we need any other leagues or any other teams? 
like everybody just wants to see these teams play. So right. we'll just play everywhere, right? There will, mm-hmm. you know, that now that's obviously extreme. It's not like all leagues are going to die, but uh, with TV and with the ability to actually play league games anywhere in the world, you know, why do you need your local team? Do you guys remember the, the, you guys remember the movie Rollerball? Yes. Remember with James Kahn? It was yes. these, you know, world teams. It was like a, you know, almost like a super league. So, um, and we know how that turned out for James. It yeah. turned out well. We, You're pulling out the old movie reference. <laughs> I know, and we're, we're old guys. I just like go to, over well with our with our listeners. What's your demographic for this? Uh, this well, that was 80, Sam. 80, that was it's eighty plus, basically. We, just, everybody who's gotten a vaccine is our listeners. That's what's going on. Sorry. All right, well, Professor Banks, we appreciate you going through that full litany of, uh, of legal issues that, uh, you know, because look, this game is unique because it is around the world. Um, you know, people talk about NFL and NHL, yeah, but, uh, and Major League Baseball, you know, which has a World Series every year, as we know, but, um, it's, but it's really, really soccer. Yeah, soccer is the, is the canary in the coal mine for so many of these issues. And we thank you for uh, just really breaking it down for us and, and also not being stumped by young Sam's uh, frivolous attempt to, to uh, make you not <laughs> know what you were talking about. Professor Bank, thank you so much. Uh, professor of, uh, of Law at UCLA School of Law, thank you so much for joining us on Over the ball. Always a pleasure. Thanks very much. Hey, remember to tweet us at over the ball, like us on Facebook and Instagram and write a review. In fact, make us one of your favorites. It makes a big difference. Well, you know, hey guys, uh, that's actually one test I might be able to pass now because he breaks it down for us. It makes sense of it all. So I uh, oh, you wouldn't. love having him on the show. I really do. <laughs> I always think like, you know, the technocrat stuff, but it's uh, it's football, it's soccer. It's what we love. And it's uh, all these various machinations are just wonderful to hear and, and have him break them down for us. Uh, so a state school boy like myself can figure it out. So uh, Yeah, no, it was, uh, it, it was fascinating and, and to be continued because again, I just... I'm not sure if that's CBA. This will be the last CBA of 2021. Who knows? Right, right. I'm All right. Sam, what's to see? December. Sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm just curious to see on the, you know, his point about betting on the TV contracts for MLS. Yeah. I, I think, you know, he was talking about potentially bundling them with the national teams, et cetera. I, I do think MLS needs to find a way to make their broadcast more interesting. They need to liven them up right. somehow. They need to do something. I, I don't, I'm not saying I have the answer. Their 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 big their biggest difference, obviously, from you know the massive contracts in Europe and stuff, is just competition. You know, mm-hmm. they they have there's so many other sports here going on with so many other TV deals, and and it just falls way down. And the viewers, you, you know, the viewership keeps going down in all the sports. I mean, the Super Bowl did 91 million this year; they did 115 million. Um, but they uh, but they need to get creative you know they need to get like live betting going or something or like your point kevin about telling more of these guys stories i mean right right again i'm not saying i have the answer i just think there's got to be something there we know all the basketball players we know all the football players we don't know all the soccer players and and and, you know in a time when yeah numbers are going down grail they introduced premier league into the united states and suddenly the, the numbers are great right. and Univision and the, the league MX. I, I mean, it's just, there are positives. If you're looking about where there's more growth potential, it certainly is in soccer. So yeah. um, I understand it. And I think they, they need to coalesce some of this coverage so that it's all, you know, look at us, we're soccer people and, and it's pretty disjointed to us. We're like, what's games that world two world cup two, you know, well, the you electric, usually, it, the electric it does, boogaloo. It does get split up too, because most companies don't want to come in and buy the whole thing. So you get, you know, right, you've right. got ESPN, ESPN plus FS one, you know, 
Amazon gets a few, whatever it is. Uh, that's the way all these deals See, are going now. Sam and I, we, we go passion and it, and Grail always breaks <laughs> it down to the uh, capitalistic Why is it, um, I mean, it's money just, and you know, revenue it, and Flinny, Flinny is, you know, it's, they will, they will slice and dice as much as they can believe. Me. Right. Right. Okay. So Sam, you got a quiz for us today. Yeah. First of all, I have to just touch base on my, some of my points from last week. First of all, I got both my betting picks wrong, but I'm going to be honest and open about it. I'm not just going to move on. Um, I, I, feel like had, now, I feel like I'm your therapist now. Open, <laughs> I, had taken, uh, I had taken Roma to either win or draw at Juve. They lost 2-0. However, I was led to believe Brian Reynolds would have been on the bench. He wasn't. I don't know. So. Well, that wouldn't have changed you know. the scoreline, my, my friend. Uh, and then I picked Verona to win at Udinese, uh, and they lost 2-0. So I was pretty bad on that. Um, also, I have to add something to last week's quiz because I left it out. Um, if you remember, the quiz was on the odds for both this summer's Euro and the World Cup next year. Mm -hmm. um, so the three favorites, just as a reminder for the World Cup, are France at 6-1 to one and Bel uh, sorry, Brazil and Germany at 7-1. to one. Um, So the final question that I left out is, what are the odds for the U.S. to win the 2022 World Cup? Thirty-two to one. I'm, I'm, I'm going to say I'm going to say 150 to one. Okay, well you split it. It's 100 to one. Okay, uh, and those are the same odds, just for context, as Bosnia, Denmark, and Serbia. So, hey, that's not that's bad company, of, to be honest with you. Yeah, not terrible. Oh, no, no wow. I mean those are decent teams. So uh, not powder puff teams, as you no, refer to most of these, no, no powder puff. I know a bunch of Northern Ireland guys who come over the what's ball on Trinidad, you, calling them a powder puff. Sam, team. what's Trinidad and Tobago? Eight thousand to one. I they didn't qualify. Didn't get that far down the list. Um, <laughs> you failed that quiz too. Yeah. All right. So my betting picks for this week, if anyone still wants to follow me after I went over two, um, Inter Lazio on Sunday should be a good game to start with. I like Inter to win and both teams to score. That will get you just about two to one odds. And then Verona, I took them last week and they didn't win. I'm going to take them again at home this week against Parma. Uh, and that's two to one odds. That's on Monday. Okay. So those are my. I'll, I'll have picks. a. I'll like to order the chicken parmesan. <laughs> well, uh, that's I'm, a pretty I'm, good R roll there. I'm gonna I'm gonna fluff my own feathers a little bit here since I oh, I predicted a porn Man reference. City. Very yeah, nice. Yeah, exactly. Man <laughs> City. I predicted Man City three one over Liverpool and they they won four one. But uh, so you got this week I'm gonna go with one all Leicester Liverpool. Oh, that's mine. That's my pick. Same thing. One one, one all. Yeah, yeah okay. that's the game I'm. I think Liverpool watch. kind of writes the ship, but not completely. And I ah, just they're too that, hobbled up. I just think two in their heads. I think Leicester's good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and they and, and they got beat. I mean, they played what three weeks ago? I think. Mm -hmm. you know, they, you know, so they matched up again. So, so yeah. my quiz for this week, obviously talking about the MLS CBA and under the new one, this most recent one, uh, the minimum salary for 2021 will be $81,375 rising to 125,875 by 2027. So the quiz this week, that's the minimum is what are the current minimum salaries for the other North American sports leagues, starting with MLB. <laughs> you guys want to have a guess? <laughs> I'm going to say MLBs. I'm going to say half a million. I'm going to say 500. I think 750,000 for MLB. You guys are both pretty close. It's 570, 570,000. Well, I'm actually quite a bit closer, Sam, to be technical. Okay. I mean, I'm only making a half a million a year. Mine had a five in it and his had a seven in it. Okay. What about NBA? Oh, my God. I'm going to say this is a million five. I'd say a million two. 
Okay, it's actually 925,258. However, that's for a first year player. So that's the bare minimum. So if you're, okay. you know, as you- Oh my you, God, that's so much money. It's as tough. you, that's you know, put, as you put in your time, the minimum salary, your minimum salary raises. Uh, okay, Just what about- I have a million bucks for a rookie. Wow, yeah. but you know, not even, you know, wow. All right. What about the NFL? I'm going to say 650. All right. First of all, I just want to say the poor NFL guys with a three-year shelf life. Uh, these guys have beaten themselves up. They well, should. Get, they're not making as much. Injuries, joint injuries, yeah. everything. And, yeah. and so I would say uh, five seventy-five, six fifty. I'm going to go with six fifty. Okay. So you guys Did both you just say the that? same thing, right? Yeah. Oh, really? That okay. must have been. Wow. I have short-term memory loss there. <laughs> uh, okay. Well, you're both basically right. So it was 610,000 this nice. year for Good a first-year player, uh, which yeah. will increase incrementally. So I would imagine by next year, it would be right around 650,000. How about, does that include the taxi squad guys, the guys in the, you know, the second teamers and the, uh, you know, practice? <sighs> it's, it's, well, it's any contracted player. Wow, because man, yeah. that they, you know they're the ones who get ripped off. I really yeah. believe that the, those, those players. I'm. It's their their shelf life is so short, and they beat themselves up so badly. I don't sport. actually know the answer to that because yeah. there is a difference in MLS between a first team player and a reserve team player in terms yeah. of the minimum deal. So I'm yeah. not sure if the same rules apply there. Um, okay, last one, NHL. I'm um, gonna go. F um, let's see. I'm gonna go somewhere in between. I'm gonna say. F 450. Five, 510. It's actually 775,000. Nice, so nice. Yeah. A little bit higher than I thought Thank it would boys. be. That's excellent. Good for the NHL. Yeah. All right. Good stuff, guys. Anything else before we, uh, well, I'm going to watch Leicester Liverpool. That's my game yeah. this week. So, no, I, I, I did just want to mention that uh, a college soccer coaching legend passed away this week. Uh, Cliff Stevenson uh, yeah. passed away at 92, legendary Brown University soccer coach. He recruited me um, in my senior year. Alas, I was not smart enough to be an Ivy League person. So uh, that you didn't get it. You got rejected. <laughs> no, I got rejected from Brown and Dartmouth. Both of the coaches wanted me to go there and I was just too dumb. So that well, yeah, but well, wait, though, you're from Greenwich, Connecticut, which these <laughs> elitist kids have an advantage. Usually you PG a year. I, and went, then to you go to Ivy I went to Greenwich High. It was salt of the earth. But uh, Public anyway, oh, yeah. So, yeah. No, <laughs> Greenwich no, so, High. No, so like, anyway. And so anyway, uh, yeah. So he coached there from 1960 to 91. Lifetime record of 251, 160 and 36. 15 Ivy League titles and uh, two Final Four appearances. And by the way, he also coached the men's, the uh, who was the head men's lacrosse coach from 61 to 82. So quite a career for uh, Cliff Stevenson. Yeah, he was, uh, he was legendary. He really yeah. was. I, I mean, we played Brown occasionally, like in scrimmages and things, but, you know, he had produced some great players for, you know, for a while that Ivy League schools could, they could draw foreign players. They could draw yeah. some of the, the, prep schools that used to play soccer pretty predominantly um, before it was sort of featured in a lot of high schools. It was a different time, but um, so many great stories I've heard about Cliff. He really, uh, you know, put a lot of players through his, um, his process. Yeah. A guy named Freddie Pereira, who was an amazing uh, player, Portuguese player uh, out of Fall River, Massachusetts, was an All-American, I think Herman Award winner. Yeah. Um, so he put, you know, for an Ivy League school to actually be on a national level like that. And to be winning for so long as he did 
and win so many Ivy League titles is it's just amazing. And, yeah. you know, I, I, on the heels of that, I want to talk about the passing of, of my coach, um, one of my professional coaches uh, passed last week. Because, look, these men have uh, they were doing things for this game when it wasn't established and there wasn't really a pro league and and uh, athletic departments did dismiss soccer teams and they had to fight for whatever they got. And, um, you know, someone like Cliff made it a priority to make soccer uh, important. And uh, so my coach was a coach named Chris Bartels who passed away last week. And, you know, he had been an assistant coach in, in the MISL uh, for the Memphis uh, Americans. And, you know, I think about it because look, um, I got drafted by uh, in, in the NASL, they folded, never heard from, you know, any of the teams, none of us did. And I remember being part of the, the National Sports Festival where you have probably the best college players are all there for a month playing games. And we all, you know, would go out for a beer. It was a different percentage beer because it was Colorado. We were in Colorado Springs. But we talked about having no place to go. All these players had nowhere to go. The NASL had downsized, had folded. The MISL had downsized. So all the players from the NASL, mostly foreign, all the players from MPSL and MSL, mostly foreign, there were less teams to play for now. All those players flooded the market. If you were an American kid, you did not get a chance to play anywhere. You didn't. Getting a tryout was like being on the team, basically. Mm -hmm. And I remember uh, we were just dejected. There was nowhere to go. And suddenly this league, this NPSL came around. And I got drafted by the Kalamazoo Kangaroos. And I just thought it was a joke. And I'm like, what? Who the hell are you? Like, that doesn't even make any sense. Well, it was this guy, Chris Bartels was the first head coach of Kalamazoo in the NPSL. And I got to give it to him. The guy was an American soccer player, um, you know, himself at a Jersey and he drafted all and, and signed American players. And mm -hmm. let me tell you, let, Oh, that's my phone. Let me tell you something. These to, to, to stick with American players like he did was unheard of because I entered that league. Now you're talking about a college kid that comes into the indoor league three line rules, dump it in the corner, like all the hockey stuff that happens that we know nothing about. We went out and played in our first scrimmage. We played against the Canton Invaders, which had Victor Kasky and uh, all these MISL all-stars, Oscar Pisano, all these great players. We were so outclassed. But what I have to give Coach Bartels credit for was he stuck with us as young American players. And you know what? We started to move up and, and make the grade. We learned how to play at that level. And, it, you know, any of us who've played at a certain level, when you jump up a level, it takes time to sort of deal with the speed of play. And I don't think a lot of teams were not given, uh, first of all, Americans had no opportunities, but a, a lot of uh, leagues were not, and teams were not giving Americans that opportunity to really, for that first three, four months, just immerse yourself in the game at that level and you eventually adjust. And we were quite proud that, you know, we were uh, we were an American team with American college soccer players and we were in the middle of the table for most of the year. And and uh, Coach Bartels gave us that uh, that opportunity and he stuck with it. And um, and I led the league in penalties and he still <laughs> he's still he's still never. Out. So uh, all the best to to Chris, uh, his family and all the guys I know that I played with that played for Chris. Um, we have really fond memories. It's, uh, you know, and again, that league. Uh, it just brought forth, you know, Mike Noonan and, and all these other head coaches all around the country that are continuing the legacy that guys like Cliff Stevenson and Chris Bartels did. So uh, 
uh, all the best. Rest in peace uh, to both of you. All right, guys, uh, that's all the time we have today on Over the Ball. Uh, I'd like to thank our guest, Professor Stephen Bank, uh, making sense of uh, what doesn't always make sense. Uh, I'm Kevin Flynn for Grail Hallett and Sam Griswold. We'll talk to you next time on OTB.